You're listening to a special edition of The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist is brought to you in association with UBS. Hello from Midori House in London. Welcome to a very special edition of The Globalist here on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards. Today we're looking back at 12 months in global affairs. Somehow we'll try to pack all the major issues into less than 30 minutes. The Russian President Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. The United States Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. China has just announced a major nationwide easing of its zero COVID policy. In Iran this morning, the army vows to, quote, confront the enemies and put down a series of deadly protests, mostly led by women. It is one of the most stunning political comebacks of former president Luis Ignacio da Silva, or Lula, returns to lead Brazil. From the war in Ukraine to some dramatic election upsets today, we're reviewing some of the events that shaped the world in 2022. Plus, a year in protests and some of the people we said goodbye to. Join us as we dissect the highs and lows of the year that was. All coming up right now on The Globalist here on Monocle 24. You're listening to a special edition of The Globalist here on Monocle 24, reviewing 2022 in global affairs. I'm Tom Edwards. Over the next half hour, I'm joined by a panel of experts to help me review the year that was. Those guests are Isabel Hilton, visiting professor at King's College London and the founder and senior advisor to China Dialogue, and Marie Leconte, political journalist and author. Isabel, Marie, hello, welcome to The Globalist. Um, Before we get into some of the stories that have defined 2022, let's start on an upbeat note. Uh, I'll ask you both, Isabel and Marie, for a highlight from 2022. Um, I guess two things will certainly uh, stay with me. One was the eruption, for the first time in a long time, of protest in China of a significant kind. And the second was the earlier passage of the IRA, unfortunately named, if you're a Brit, but the Inflation Reduction Act, which finally brought the United States into the 21st century in its views of climate change. Um, there were some positive consequential developments this year, some of which we will, we will talk about and a couple you, you mentioned there. Marie, what about you? Any any highlights? What will What's burned into your memory banks from 22? I am Moroccan. Uh, so obviously Morocco getting to the semi-final of the World Cup, but being the first African and Arab country to do so has been incredible. I think, you know, my mum will probably talk about this on her deathbed. Like It will not be, like, she will not be talking about me and my brother, but generally just about about Morocco doing so well at football. So I think that that's been absolutely wonderful. And then Elon Musk buying Twitter has, you know, definitely not been a positive thing. But you know, as someone who essentially lives on Twitter and has lived on Twitter for about a decade, even if you know we, we get to the first of January twenty twenty three and Twitter is still somehow standing. It does feel like the beginning of the end. So actually, I think that will be quite weird, obviously on a personal level, but also I think the quite serious point is that Twitter is so 
embedded now in the media, in politics, in global affairs, in protests, all we talk about later, it will be really weird to see what happens, I think, when Twitter does disappear or Twitter in its current form disappears. And I think 2022 will be remembered as the year when that started happening. Absolutely. Well, some highs and some definitive lows in the mix already. Let's start our discussion, though, close to the beginning of the year, uh, February, the 24th uh, of February 2022. Russia invaded Ukraine. Ten months on, fierce fighting continues. Isabel Hilton, how did we get here? How did the tide turn? We're, We're approaching the end of the year. I think it's safe to say it hasn't gone the way probably anybody perhaps expected on the 24th of of February. But looking back a little over these turbulent few months, I don't know, what's the first thing that crops up if I ask you about that one? Well, a number of things, obviously. Ukraine has proved itself remarkably agile militarily uh, in almost every aspect. So intelligence is clearly very sharp. Its uh, its digital warfare is pretty good. Its military tactics are pretty good. Corollary of that is how relatively rubbish the Russians turned out to be. And, you know, we had this image of the great Russian military machine, but it's very good at destroying things. It's not terribly good at winning battles. But having said that, I think we should also recognise that, and I've, I've seen a lot of very big things happen over the course of my journalistic career. And it does take time to realise that things have changed forever. 1989 was like that, and Ukraine is like that. Things have changed forever, and it still keeps moving how things have changed. But there's been a huge realignment, I think, in global geopolitics. I find quite disconcerting the number of people I know in emerging economies who take the Putin view of this conflict. You know, the Western liberal democratic narrative is not prevailing in quite a lot of the world. China-Russia axis, that realignment is proving quite effective. Vis-a-vis China's uh, Xi Jinping's visit to the Arab world was pretty significant. So we're seeing a whole number of moving parts shift. And I think it will be, you know, the moment that the post-war order ended. Strong words, and I think, Areed, Marie, you were nodding. Do you, do you go along with that? It's interesting how Ukraine has sort of recalibrated itself as a player, both in terms of how it's successfully wielded its hard and, indeed, its soft power in these few short months. It's been on a sort of turbocharged trajectory on, on both bases. But do you recognise that complete... Uh, well, it is. It's a shift. It's an axis shift, a paradigm shift, call it what you want, that, that, that Isabel describes. Oh, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think that the few things um, I would add is the first one, obviously, I think the leadership of Zelensky has been incredible. And I remember in the very first few days of the war, you know, people were saying, actually, you know, he's a former comedian. He has no idea what he's doing. He'll probably run away from Kiev and, you know, never to be seen again. And that'll be it once the troops run into Kiev on day four. Obviously, that did not happen. And I think... In, a, in an era as well, where we've had so much underwhelming or downright dangerous leadership in many, many countries. It's been incredible to watch, again, what can happen when a country has a, has a great leader. And then I think what I found interesting as well has been the kind of re-emergence of the EU and NATO as symbols. And I think we can probably argue that actually the EU politically has not always been great at providing everything it said it would provide to Ukraine um, over the past year. But again, as this kind of symbol of liberal democracy, of freedom, etc., I think um, it's become a lot more powerful. And NATO as well, which again, you know, it's, it's not just been Ukraine, but several countries who had been on the fence or even kind of deciding not to join finally this year saying actually fine, you know, clearly things bigger than ourselves and bigger than our specific beliefs are happening. So we'll join. So yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree. I think that the world has changed in quite a fundamental way and is still changing, I think, in ways we can't quite predict yet. 
Isabel, does it sort of suit... It was funny, I think over the last couple of years we talked a bit about Joe Biden in the US and the sort of return of a more traditional... Well, just of a US foreign policy. And we've kind of seen evidence of that in terms of his pronouncements and his the way he's dealt with, with uh, the Ukraine conflict in particular. Have we seen a shift back, that sort of readjustment, that realignment that you were talking about? Does it resemble to you the way some of these geopolitical battles were played out are there sort of echoes of the past or is this is this the first of a new a new nature of, of conflicts well i think it's it there are echoes of the past in that you know this is a return of strongman politics which you know have been constrained i think since the end of the second world war with the idea that there was a security council with the idea that there were rules now it's not that the world has been war free but they they you know the big confrontation between the soviet union and the us was largely fought out in proxy wars which were relatively contained and um, not least because both sides knew that if they confronted each other directly it could end up in a nuclear conflict, which would be the end of everything. So that was one constraint. And actually, I think to add to the list of things to be cheerful about, I think we're going to have to take a hard look at nuclear proliferation also in terms of loosening loosening of constraints that have kept us relatively safe for several decades. I think that one would merit some close attention because it seems to me that there are a number of powers that are on the edge of becoming nuclear. And the global system is not going to be robust enough to stop that happening. Um, Marie, what about the unanimity, certainly in sort of Western nations, in terms of the response to uh, the Ukraine crisis? I guess in some senses it's unsurprising, but you mentioned already the EU. If we look at how this has been dealt with politically within other markets here in the UK or in France, wherever it might be, in Germany and, and across the European bloc, or indeed in North America. Have you been surprised by the broad sort of unanimity on display, particularly in markets? Look at the US, we talk about this increasingly polarised system, but actually people seem to kind of rally round. Has that surprised you at all in 22? Um, well, sort of yes and no, because I think that the Ukraine conflict is quite unique in that, you know, normally when you talk about uh, global issues and again and, and conflict in general it's always about things that are quite complex and there are no good guys and bad guys and actually you know this is all quite hard to understand etc this could not possibly be more black and white ukraine was minding its own business russia arrived and invaded you know so, so i think that that's made it easier for people to just take one side what i found more striking actually is the number of non-western countries who either decided to entirely side with putin or I think actually quite a lot of them, you know, missing votes at the UN or sort of not saying anything or, you know, kind of stepping back a bit and staying quiet. I think that's I did not quite expect that to happen. But then that may be changing. So I think as we've seen in the past few months, both uh, Xi Jinping and uh, Modi in India have started making some noises towards Putin saying, you know, come on, enough now. So so may- maybe, you know, that is something that, that we'll see change in 2023. But, you know, so far, I would say the kind of split between the Western world and everyone else has been quite striking. Just on where we are in terms of the conflict at the moment, interesting, the likes of uh, uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, who said, you know, it looks like there's a bit of a freeze maybe on the agenda from the Russian side. Is that so they can regroup, go again in 23? But he also said the conditions for any kind of settlement, any sort of meaningful peace or even discussions, they're simply not there. Do, do you go along with that view? And if that's the case, then how are any of the sort of stakeholders here going to extricate themselves as well? I think there is a strong risk of a frozen conflict, actually. I don't know Russia well enough to know what it would take for Russia 
to come to the table with anything like a reasonable set of demands, I would assume a lot more pain has to be suffered and there has to be a lot more pressure on Putin. China could bring pressure on Putin rather than enabling him, uh, which it's been doing. But in some ways, it quite suits China to have Western attention on Ukraine and Western resources being drained down into that particular fight because it takes the pressure off the Pacific theatre, which is a primary concern to, to China. It's quite hard to be optimistic. I think I think we're probably in for a long stalemate. And I think that Putin will count on that to erode the will of the Europeans and the Americans to carry on supporting. And it's quite easy to see with there still are voices from the far right, which are saying, why are we fighting this? And whilst we may well get through this winter on gas, it's going to be much harder next winter because we're not going to have Russian gas to refill the European storage. So it's not that getting through this winter is going to solve it. And Putin knows that. So he's in it for the long game. Isabel and Marie, both still with me on this special edition of The Globalist on Monocle 24, where we're looking back at the past year. Next, we'll be turning to some of the elections that have shaped 2022. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Well, we turn now to what has certainly been a big year in terms of the elections. That will almost certainly change the course of the year to come. Uh, We've seen the rise of the right in Europe, some shock results and some political resurrections, be they surprising or otherwise. Um, Marie Lecomte, let's begin with you, first of all. Where where should we start? Perhaps uh, in France. We're going to look at the US. We could talk about Brazil as well. Um, Let's talk a bit about France, first of all. Um, What what do you make of the uh, sort of electoral landscape now that we have a little bit of hindsight? Oh, Christ. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not cheery, I can tell you that. Uh, No, no, it it was quite an odd election because we, we, we knew what, you know, was going to happen from about 2018, 2019 onwards, because what happened in the 2017 election is that the traditional left and the traditional right were just obliterated. They entirely failed to gain a sort of new life between then and the election this year. So again, when the election came around, I mean, Macron barely did any campaigning himself. The only person really who campaigned properly was Le Pen. Some people were definitely stressed about the possibility of Le Pen winning. I don't think that was ever going to happen. It will be interesting to see what happens next time. Where, you know, will Le Pen run again for the you know 17th time? Uh, and if not, who would replace her instead? And we know that Macron actually will not run again. So actually, in this case, who can possibly run to replace you know the head of the one-man band? And then will that create space as well for the more traditional parties to say, actually, fine, you know, you guys have had your fun, we're coming back now. So, so yeah, I think this election was entirely uninteresting, I would argue, <laughs> but, uh, but may provide the setup for a more interesting contest next, uh, next time. Well, it's funny, Isabel, we already talked a little bit about, you know, the end and starts of eras politically. Um, certainly for the established parties in France, it's it's felt like the end for, 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 quite, for quite some time. Um, yeah. But, also, you know, we look across the block, all across Europe, it's not really just the flirtation with ultra-nationalists or right-wingers. It's pretty entrenched. Do you find that uninteresting? Are you reconciled to that? Is the, that's the nature of the political landscape as it is at the moment? I, I find it, um, no, I find it very interesting, but I... But 
I find it very hard to see where it's going. I mean, the fact that Dan Hidalgo, Socialist Party candidate in those elections, got 1.8%, that's extraordinary. I mean, it's not that long ago that the Socialists, you know, had the presidency after all. So it is the destruction of traditional parties is is very curious. The, the one place where it's happened less actually is in the UK. And that's partly because our voting system locks in parties that are frankly long past their sell-by date because the constituencies that put them together no longer really exist in that form. So we're stuck with parties that have very little meaning, you know, in terms of their hinterland. Whereas where you have a more flexible uh, voting system, these shifts can happen and they are happening. It obviously gives opportunities to parties that I think are pretty sinister for democracy. But so far, the centre ground or at least the kind of centre opinion and the kind of pro-democratic populi have voted the right way, even if sometimes by rather narrow margins. And do you think it serves the discourse better to have new sort of entrants and to have this degree of flux rather than the established powers. We're going to talk a little bit about the US midterms where again you have very much this sort of two-party system and let's be honest the discourse is not that... Uh, it's frozen into meaningless hostility. In so the is, it, is it better then to even uh, permit some of these more uh, sinister elements if it does serve the, yeah. the greater sort of political good? Yes, it's better to understand that those sinister elements are there and to face them down than to have them capture an existing party, which when you have a first-past-the-post system, that's what they do. And that's what, that's what has happened in the United States and certainly in one party. So I think actually to have flex Flexibility in the political landscape as societies change, shouldn't politics change? Um, Marie, let's talk a little bit about the US. Uh, I guess a surprise kind of on the upside in the midterms. Lots of concern from many, certainly in, on the sort of Democrat side, that they would lose both houses, etc. It looks like they sort of did it a bit better. What did you make of the, the midterm results? Uh, well, I, I'm very happy to admit that I have underestimated Joe Biden every single step of the way, every you know, primary election at every single step. I've said he's not going to do it. And then he did it. So, you know, I'm very happy holding my hands up here. What I've sort of found interesting is that actually, you know, the reasons the Republicans were doing quite well for quite a while is that, you know, that their attack line was saying, oh, God, look at the Democrats. They're just talking about weird cultural war stuff that no real person cares about. And again, that sort of worked. But the problem is they've gone too far with that. And now, all they talk about is the weird culture war stuff, which, again, real people don't massively care about. So, you know, talking about how drag queens are predators, no one's going to look at leaflet with that on and say, oh, God, yes, this is the one issue I care about. You know, it's not healthcare or education, just really the threat of drag queens to my children. What it showed, well, A, was that, again, I think the culture wars, if played on really cynically, can definitely be an add-on or a bonus to a party. Uh, electorally speaking, where they can't really be the main basis for an electoral platform. But also, and I think the quite heartening thing is that actually people in the US care a lot about abortion. Um, they, they do actually care a lot about abortion. I think the Republicans partly um, failed to do what they set out to do because of what they did. So, yeah, I think that that, that was... Slightly heartening, I guess. A, a silver lining, perhaps. Yeah, I think, struggling here to be positive. No, I think um, slightly heartening about has it. And just briefly on that, I, I mean, looking to the US, certainly in economic terms, it's obviously going to be a bit more difficult for Biden into the second half of this electoral cycle to get things done. But I don't know. Am I being naive, Isabel, and thinking that? The US looks a bit further ahead, certainly in the economic cycle, certainly than Europe, definitely than here in the UK, and that maybe the US can drag us all along a little bit in its slipstream? Is that just completely naive? Or? Well, no, that would be nice. <laughs> um, I, and, and let's hope that, I mean, there's a massive stimulus package in 
in the Inflation Reduction Act, they're pouring an awful lot of money into the economy. So that ought to have some effect and it is looking a bit more cheerful. I'm still a bit concerned about the next election, though. I can't see the candidate on the Democrat side. Um, the only upside is that the Republicans are in a mess too. But, you know, that's not really what you should be able to count on. I did want to ask you about Brazil. Can we agree that that was just resoundingly a positive election? Oh. Yes, what a relief. <laughs> Rather narrow. Uh, narrower than I would have wished, but then narrower than everybody thought. But yes, absolutely positive. So more more good news. There, there has been some, depending. You have to look quite hard to find it. Um, we're taking a special uh, look back at the year in global affairs. We've talked about Ukraine. We've talked about some of the biggest elections of the year, only briefly uh, about some of those. Let's turn to some of the farewells, the, the people to whom we've said goodbye. There have been well, it's funny. We talk about these sort of political and ideological era shifts, Isabel. Um, a bit of an end of an era feeling. Marie, let me ask you first of all about Queen Elizabeth II. Obviously, that's been a gigantic story here in the UK, but it, it was huge everywhere. And there can't be that many heads of state, global leaders to command that kind of enduring fascination, dare I say, fondness from certain quarters, even from some very committed Republican parts of the world. But that's really the only, probably the only place to start, isn't it, in terms of looking back at those who've departed in 2022? I know, so absolutely. So, I mean, I, you'll remember the queue um, to go, um, what was the Queen's Coffin, uh, which I went to report on and kind of interviewed people there. And that was really interesting, actually, because I went kind of cynically thinking, I'm just going to find some real weirdos and I'll make for quite a fun feature. And actually, you know, nearly every conversation I had was genuinely really lovely and really touching. And actually, there were quite a lot of foreigners there. So just tourists, basically, all people who were here for a couple of months who said, actually, you know, just wanted to come and pay my respect. And including, so I remember talking to a young Mexican woman who said, well, you know, she was kind of queen of the world. She wasn't just Queen of England. And, you know, obviously, similarly, I think, talking to my families, like, both in France and in Morocco, they were all quite touched by it as well. And, and I think all of them said as well, you know, this is... Because, you know, in Morocco, like, she, Queen Elizabeth, went to Morocco some decades ago, in which everyone remembers still and talks about... Um, I think, what was it? The Queen allegedly drove past my family in Normandy at some point, sort of 30, 40 years ago, which everyone remembers. There was a sense, I think, from everyone else that she was um, she was someone... Yeah, again, I mean, exactly as you said, I think, recognised by the entire world and I sincerely can't think of anyone else who's the same really Beyonce maybe well exactly but is there is that a consequence perhaps as well of this idea of reaching a level of fame during the sort of the analog era if you like and then translating into digital now the whole of the world the global media is so fragmentary it's kind of difficult to command that level of fame people said this also when Muhammad Ali died they said there will never be anyone as famous as this guy because he was one of the last of the kind of there was one channel there's one radio there's newspapers commanded by a cabal of people with their red pens deciding what the agenda is could we ever see anyone who has that kind of global renown again that's quite hard to imagine. But, but the universality of her appeal isn't entirely explained, I think, by the fact that it was the analogue age. I, I, the British official who was in charge of organising her trip to China had very, very interesting stories about how Shanghai went crazy when the Royal Yacht was, you know, parked on the Bund. But I think that sort of degree of, of affection and fame... It's more than just the medium. I think the fact that she came to the throne as a very young woman, very attractive with a young family, and the world sort of watched her grow old in the job, I think had a lot to do with it. Her her 
son is has grown old waiting for the job and is, I fear, never going to attract the same level of affection. And I, I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to achieve that, but not entirely because of the medium, as I say. I think the circumstances, the era, um, the idea that this was the last of something, mm. is, that really matters. And she seemed to understand that almost. Certainly, I think she was her, quite smart about her role. Yes. Yeah, fascinating. Um, let me ask you both about a couple of other, you know, extraordinary figures. Um, Shinzo Abe, astonishing moment, bizarre. Again, to me, it felt like something from the days gone by. What did you make of that, Marie? An extraordinary, another extraordinary moment in an already tumultuous and year. It was, yeah, completely sort of absurd and puzzling if that these are even right words to use for that because I, rem- I remember seeing it on Twitter and going you know and then properly sort of like st- it's stopping me in my tracks and especially in Japan as well which is so renowned as you know for being one of the world's safest countries and there's no violence there so for a former president to to be killed in broad daylight was incredible but then so what I found I think again this is slightly cold I guess but what, what I found especially fascinating about this was the fact that the murderer did this as a protest against the Moonies, who had quite close links to Shinzo Abe's party. And what we saw happen in Japan after that was actually quite a lot of people. You know, I I think it was even most people saying, actually, hang on, yes, we should talk about the Moonies' link with the party, with the kind of political sphere, and some changes should come. So slightly incredibly, the murderer managed to get what he wanted. That doesn't normally happen. That is not the way things go normally. Absolutely remarkable sort of event, really. Uh, what did you make of, of that as well? It was pretty uh, shocking. And I always think these things, when they're sort of played out in, as, as Marie said, in broad daylight, the assembled media, he was obviously out on the, on the stump. It just makes it seem even harder to believe that what's happening is happening, doesn't well, it? Well, it was an assembly of really bizarre things. I mean, I remember the Moonies from the Cold War. They were part of, you know, kind of anti-communism and in things like the World Anti-Communist League, a whole bunch of things that really have, you know, the world has moved on from. And to find that they were still so big in Japan was in itself completely bizarre. The murderer, who obviously had his motives, but he he made his own gun, which is another extraordinary thing because you can't, easily buy a gun in Japan and he'd assembled it from, you know, bits of string and um and and pipe and fired it twice, three times before he was stopped. A it worked, B they were very slow to stop him, um, continuing to fire. The other quite interesting thing was that it was obviously a profound shock to Japan where these things don't happen. But people went on campaigning. It didn't really change the way mm. people behaved. And I think it was recognised that this was a one off singular strange event but it didn't seem then to set a precedent a precedent for others so that was quite encouraging about japan uh, and just briefly we've mentioned what well, you mentioned 1989 earlier one of the sort of architects in that period mikhail gorbachev a titan in terms of the story of the certainly second half of the 20th century reflections maybe just briefly on, on on the passing of mikhail gorbachev i mean another whose legacy has been reflected upon questioned differently as the as time's gone on we have different understanding different insights a, a, a towering figure though Oh, no, absolutely. And and again, you know, it felt like the kind of end of an era for this to happen in the same year that Russia is kind of, you know, going to war against Ukraine. At, at risk of sounding trite and stating the obvious, it just felt quite a heavy-handed metaphor of going, OK, fine, actually, you know, time is a flat circle. Um, and and it's, it was funny, wasn't it? There was, I think Gorbachev was kind of lying in state. Putin did visit, but it was all very stage managed. It was particularly curious. Even he looked like he didn't know how to manage exactly that quite 
staggeringly arresting dynamic that Marie was talking about. Indeed, and um, and actually Putin's, Putin's story and Putin's legacy are, are being vigorously rewritten at this point by the Russians and the Chinese um, as, you know, as the architect of the downfall of the great empire of the Soviet Union. So we celebrate uh, in the West because, you know, everybody knows that, that without Gorbachev, the Cold War wouldn't have ended. Russia wouldn't have had its chance at democracy. Um, Eastern Europe... Uh, now, you know, all these member states in the European Union, if you think of the massive things that he set in train. But if you're an autocrat um, and, a, and a leading Communist Party figure, you see it rather differently. And it is very much contested in Beijing and in Moscow. And well, that kind of leads us quite elegantly uh, onto the final thing that I wanted to ask you both a little bit to reflect upon in terms of some of these big themes from 2022. We have to link this a little bit with the end of the sort of lockdown era. 2022 saw demonstrations, protests all over the world. One imagines people have been somewhat keeping their powder dry by force or by circumstance. Um, is it is it the, the return of protest? Do you think there is something to that idea that the pandemic has stopped people from assembling lawfully, unlawfully, politically, peacefully, and that actually broadly, Marie, something to to celebrate these kinds of expressions? Oh, absolutely. And I think on a sort of in-house note, I think that over the past year, whenever I've come on to uh, to do the daily uh, on Monocle Radio, uh, there's always been an item about protest somewhere, which <laughs> is a weird memory to have, but I feel like every single briefing doc I've had has involved riots or protests somewhere in the world. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's definitely something that, that has been quite uh, striking about this year. And, and, and absolutely. So I think, yeah, there, there's obviously power in a union, but I, I wonder as well if, you know, because I think it's fair to say that quite a lot of governments were not necessarily at their best during the pandemic, during lo- lockdowns, etc. So there's clearly been, I think, some resentment there anyway. So then on top of that, it probably didn't take much or much more actually for people to go find enough. Um, and Isabel, I guess that we have seen this sort of residual dissatisfaction of frustration with errors made in terms of the public perception. But we see even just quite recently at the World Cup, Iran's footballers and what's happening in Iran. Astonishing scenes because the context is clear to all. The consequences of such dissent are well known. They're painfully clear in a market like that. And yet people are having their, you know, almost sort of Tiananmen Square moment in Iran that almost feels like it feels like that. When you reflect on those, I mean, I don't know, presumably you marvel at the bravery of these people, the courage, but there is something quite life-affirming about people who are willing to stick to their principles. Well, it's, and... it's extremely uh, moving that people are willing to take these extraordinary risks for ideas, essentially, for freedoms that we live with very easily here in the UK and in Western liberal democracies, and which we're always being told by autocracies people don't really care about, that these are not, after all, universal values. And you see people standing out in the street and facing down security services at great personal danger. And you think, well, if they're not universal values, they're pretty close because something moves people in the end. And the people who are holding up blank sheets of paper in China they weren't really protesting about COVID. They were protesting about censorship. They were protesting about being lied to. They were protesting about not having freedom of speech. All of these things which actually turn out to matter a great deal to people. And um, it's always extraordinary to see people coming out to defend them. Well, and about China, obviously, a market which you have deep understanding. Do you think we should expect to see more of that kind of dissent, more of that kind of gesture? Because there's obviously pressures and tensions that are driven through 
economic performance or, or, or lack of or divergence from from the path. And as you mentioned, there are, there's been this sense that China or Beijing has been fairly happy that sort of global attentions have been have been elsewhere. Could that manifest itself? Do you think in the next few months with more protest, more attempts, however futile they may be, to hold some of those powers to account there? Well, I think that, that the party is very busy picking out people who were protesting about politics and, and separating them from people who were protesting about COVID. And we've just seen this extraordinary U-turn on the, on the lockdowns and the restrictions to satisfy the COVID protesters whilst they focus on the political protesters and that's going to be their priority. I don't think we're ever going to see another Tiananmen occupation in China. Um, but what has been revealed is of serious matter to the, to the party that there are a large number of young people who really don't like what's going on in China and that's going to worry them. Uh, we will watch this space. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there. I didn't even get to ask you, Maria, about the politicisation of the World Cup as a spectacle, which I was going to, but the clock is sadly uh, against us. It was just a brief glimpse back at the year gone by. Huge thanks to our roundtable, Isabel Hilton and Marie Leconte. Thanks to them both. Today's programme was produced by Tom Webb and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. <laughs>